Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 23. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, we actually have them scattered uh, throughout the, um, uh, the sanctuary here uh, underneath the seats. If there's not one under the seat directly underneath uh, by you, uh, there should be one pretty close there, little white Bibles. Uh, those are for you to borrow or to keep if you don't have a Bible. That's our gift to you. Acts 23, we're actually going to be binding off a pretty big portion of Scripture in the message today. Uh, but the really the core of what we want to look at and think about and meditate uh, on this morning is verse 11 of Acts 23, and that's what we're going to read right now. Acts 23, 11. Word of God says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us courage. We need courage. We need courage to say no to sin. We need courage to walk your way. We need courage to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We need courage to testify your word. We need courage to act upon your word. And as the word goes out this morning, as the word is preached this morning, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak truth to us, God, and that we would walk away uh, this morning knowing you more, loving you more, and following you harder. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're in the last stretch here of the book of Acts as we come to the conclusion of our series called He Reigns. The Sovereignty of God and the Gospel in Acts was the little subtitle we gave to the um, overall series. And in reality, as we were praying about this series way back, actually it was Deemer, Roger, and I praying about this series way back almost three years ago. Um, the theme that just the Lord laid upon our heart, that there's lots of themes in the book of Acts, but the one that the Lord really put upon our heart as the overarching theme in the book of Acts is the sovereignty of God and the gospel. And that is that God's word, his gospel message of Jesus is spreading out to the ends of the earth. And he reigns over that process. And we see that stand out so clearly here in this last closing part of the book of Acts. Quite frankly, these last sections are a little bit difficult to teach. Matter of fact, commentators give it very little ink to, to be honest with you, these last few chapters of Acts, uh, I've paid attention to the way some other pastors and have, have preached through the book of Acts, and some of them just kind of skip through the very end of Acts and don't even give much time to it. And I think it's because it's a little bit difficult to preach these. It's a bit repetitive uh, as Paul goes from, from hearing to hearing to hearing. Uh, and also, there's not uh, a whole lot of real um, didactic or, or doctrinal type of teaching in these final passages, but there is certainly some great truths that we can draw out of the narrative here. And so today we're going to focus, as Deemer mentioned already, kind of in on this one verse. But we're going to look at a pretty large passage of Scripture today that surrounds that verse. But I want to read the, the verse again. The following night the Lord stood by him. This is Paul. And you'll see the circumstances surrounding it here in a minute. And said, take courage, for as you have testified 
to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. We see the doctrine of the sovereignty of God shining through here in this text. And we see this tremendous comfort that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to, to Paul. We don't know for sure if Paul was discouraged or not, but when Jesus comes and stands beside him and says, take courage, I'm assuming that means he was a bit discouraged. Things hadn't quite turned out exactly as he thought they would perhaps, or maybe the persecution that he knew he was coming his way once he got to Jerusalem was, was even more difficult than he anticipated. Or maybe he was just looking at his plans for ministry because he had great ambitions to go to Rome. He had a desire for the gospel actually to go all the way to Spain. And maybe he's thinking, my goodness, look how everything's just derailing. But Jesus comes to him. The word from Christ directly to Paul is the rock upon which he stands. It helped him to understand and accept more fully what had happened to him. And it helped him to be prepared and equipped for what was going to happen to him shortly. I love that little phrase. The following night, the Lord stood by him. We need that, don't we? We need the Lord just to come and stand by us. And he is standing by us. I couldn't help but think of an illustration when I, when I was reading this, particularly after uh, Olivia had a swim meet yesterday. We went to the swim meet and uh, there were some uh, some, you know, whenever you're at a swim meet like that, something might happen. Like there was a couple of girls that were disqualified because they didn't do the right kind of turn, or maybe they got, you know, they started wrong or whatever. And, and you feel bad, you know. These these kids work up to this swim meet, and then they, may, I don't know how many events they might have, but then they, you know, they're disqualified. They don't get the time. And and I thought about the Olympics. Imagine that, you know, you work for four years. You ever seen guys that have a false start? on a sprinting event, and then they have a second false start, and they're done. All those four years' worth of work, it's, it's over after those two false starts. And, and so I was thinking about that, and, um, and then I was thinking about this verse of Jesus standing beside Paul here, and it reminded me of the Derek Redmond story. Do you remember Derek Redmond? Does anybody remember the story of Derek? Great, good. This is going to be a good illustration then. I went looking for some video late, late last night of Derek Redmond, and um, Derek Redmond was a sprinter in the 1992 Olympics, and I want you to see his story. I'm actually just going to show you a video here that um, was actually part of a Visa commercial. I'm not trying to sell you a Visa card this morning, but I want you to see the story of Derek Redmond. Derek Redmond won gold medals at the European, Commonwealth, and World Championships, but never at the Olympic Games. In 1988, he couldn't compete at the last minute because of an injury to his Achilles tendon. But at the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, Derek was ready. There were 65,000 witnesses in the stadium that day, only 250 meters away from the finish line of the semifinals in the 400. Just as it seemed he was sure to win, Derek pulled a hamstring. He began hopping on one foot to try to finish the race as a medical unit came toward him. But he refused a stretcher. Instead, he accepted the aid of his father, his best friend and hero, who had burst through the crowds to get down to his son. As tears streamed down his face, Redmond thought, I'm out of the Olympics again. The crowd roared with cheers as Derek and his father hobbled along the track, crossing the finish line together. He may not have won a medal, but he won the heart of the world. <laughs> 
beautiful picture. I remember watching that race live in 1992 when Derek Redmond's dad jumped out of those stands and came down and helped his son finish that race. And it's not a perfect illustration, obviously, but I thought of that this morning as Paul's here. And Paul oftentimes uses racing metaphors, sports metaphors. He's on his race. He's on the final leg of his race. And, and perhaps right now at this point, he is experiencing some pain emotionally. Maybe spiritually he's struggling. And certainly physically he's experienced some pain. And if you paid attention last week, you know he just got the pulp beat out of him by um, the uh, Jews there at the temple. And Jesus comes and stands beside him this night to encourage him that, you know what, you're going to finish. I've got a destination for you, and you're going to get there. And so I want us to be thinking this morning about this passage of Scripture in particular, but we're going to look at all the surrounding text. And I really think this Acts chapter 23, verse 11, is really very much the fleshing out of the Great Commission. The Great Commission says in Matthew 28, verse 19 and following, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And it doesn't end right there. That would have been a good enough commission. But it ends with these words, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, God has uh, this uh, habit of putting our theology to the test. Putting what we say we believe to the test. You know, believing in and trusting in Romans 8.28 is good theology. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Okay, we Believe that text. And if you believe that text and you embrace that text, you are believing good theology. That God is working all things together for good. I had another illustration I was going to do for the, the kids this morning. And Noah quickly informed me that I've done it before. And I've probably done it more than once before. So I'm, I'm going to just kind of reference it. After preaching a few hundred sermons, I forget which illustrations I've used and haven't used. But last night I did look up to make sure these ingredients were in there. This is obvious, but I wasn't sure about this. What's in a Nestle Toll House cookie? And I have some of the ingredients from a Nestle Toll House cookie. Now, how many children in here like chocolate chip cookies? All right, Deemer, great. All right. Maybe, I don't know who brought stuff downstairs. Maybe if you're lucky, there might be some down there today. I don't know. Okay. And I have a couple of ingredients for those very delicious and very good and very satisfying cookies. Two ingredients here. All right. And one of them is something you would find very enjoyable, which is just a bag of those Nestle Toll House chocolate chips. Okay. Any kids in here want these? All right. There you go. Save them for lunch. All right. And the other is a bag of baking soda. Any kids want to chow down on the baking soda? All right, I knew a Walsman child would stick his hand up in the air and volunteer to chow down on the baking soda. Now, I'm not going to let you do that, all right? This would not taste good. You would not enjoy this. But it is an essential ingredient to a Nestle Toll House chocolate chip cookie. And that's a 
silly little illustration, but it helps us to see that God works all things together for the good, including things that are extremely um, dissatisfying and unpleasurable and difficult and painful. And also the good things that are fun and enjoyable. He works it all together for the good. Romans 8.28 is a verse that we've quoted often here at Harbin's. We've quoted it along with other great texts like Joseph's words to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God, what? Meant it for good. Why are these verses so familiar to us here at Harbin's? Well, it's because we take the sovereignty of God seriously. We believe wholeheartedly in the absolute rule of God over all the affairs of man. We believe and teach that God's infallible word teaches that God's plans and purposes are invincible. We have convictions about it. We believe it. We teach it. I believe it's good theology. The hard part is when God is calling us to live it. It's easy to teach it. Paul, who, according to some scholars penned Romans 8.28 only months prior to these experiences in Jerusalem was having to live out his theology. So let's go back now and let's fill in some of the details around Acts chapter 23 verse 11 starting in Acts 22 verse 22. So if you want to turn to Acts 22 and verse 22 that's where we're going to start off this morning. A little bit of a recap here as you turn to that text. Okay, Paul has had a tremendous ministry. He's had three missionary journeys that, that pretty much trekked around the, the known globe, the known world of his time. He had had unprecedented success planting churches, seeing people converted to Jesus Christ. Now he had had plenty of difficulties as well. We know that he was stoned and beaten several times and shipwrecked and all sorts of things, but he'd also had plenty of good and satisfying things that had happened as well. Plenty of the chocolate chips along with the baking soda. And after all the success in ministry all over the world, God had compelled Paul to return to Jerusalem one more time. And he was constrained by the Holy Spirit to return to Jerusalem. And God had made it clear to Paul that he was going to suffer in Jerusalem. And then he had gotten to Jerusalem... And God used other things to continue to work out his plan, including the confusion within the church in Jerusalem, because there was some confusion going on there. There had been some false things said about Paul in the church there. And God would use that to get Paul to the temple, because he needed Paul in the temple. And Paul would go to the temple where there would be a riot that God would use, stirred up by some Asian Jews that God used. To get Paul into the custody of the Romans whom God would use to eventually get Paul to Rome. Verse 22 is where we pick it up. This is right after Paul has given his testimony to the Jews there in the temple. And the, and the riot, that had, after the riot that had, that had happened. And he had told them that God, had, Jesus had laid upon his heart the, the need to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we read in verse 22, it says, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. And the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why 
they were shouting against him like this. So the tribune and the soldiers had already gone in to the mob and rescued uh, Paul out of They had to actually carry Paul to get him away from these, the Jewish people who wanted to rip him from limb to limb. Paul asks for permission to speak to him. He does, gives his testimony, even relates back when he had first been saved and, and how he had come to Jerusalem and Jesus had told him to get out of Jerusalem because they weren't going to listen to his testimony but take the gospel to the Gentiles. Of course, we get to this point here. That makes the Jews mad. And so this poor Roman tribune, he's trying to figure out what's going on. He's already asked the crowd and he couldn't get a good answer. So his solution is, well, I'm going to take Paul in to the, um, to the barracks here and we're going to torture him, basically. It says they were going to flog him. This is what was done to Jesus using a a cat of nine tails or a flagellum to torture a person. It's a whip that has these strands that come off of it. And at the end of the strands, there's little pieces of, of, of bone and glass and, and metal that were, that were woven into it there. And they would take this and they would hit the person's back with this. And we know, obviously, that this was done to Jesus. And now it's about to be done to Paul. Now, Paul has been beaten before. He has received lashes before and been beaten with rods before. But he has not had a flogging like this Matter of fact, this was basically torture, and it often ended up in the death of the person being tortured. So I guess their intention was to whip him with this until he said what he had done wrong. And it says in verse 25, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now when the centurion heard this, he went out to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So Paul's, I mean, God's using all these details to work things out exactly the way um, he wants it to work out, including Paul's Roman citizenship to spare him this beating and potentially spare him his life to get him on the road to Rome. Now Paul was a Roman citizen. Now there are a few different ways to procure a Roman citizenship during those days. Number one, you could be born a Roman citizen and born in Rome. Um, but outside of that, if you were a person of high standing and nobility, you could perhaps be granted Roman citizenship. Um, one very common way of getting a Roman citizenship was bribing officials or bribing um, uh, high, people higher up with money in order to be granted a Roman citizenship. Apparently, this is what the Tribune had done. He had paid a large sum. He had given a nice-sized bribe for his citizenship. Um, uh, thirdly, uh, it could also be done as a, given as a, as a reward for some deed you did in honor of the emperor or in honor of the Roman Empire. Now how did Paul's family get the Roman citizenship? We have no idea. Uh, you can make some, some speculation. Now Paul was what by trade? What was his trade? He was a tent maker. He was a tent maker by trade, which means that was probably his father's trade as well. So you can kind of guess maybe at one point the Roman 
army was in need of some tents, and he made tents for the Roman army, perhaps free of charge or something, in honor of the emperor, and he was granted a Roman citizenship. We don't know. That's just speculation. But we do know that God had a purpose behind it. Way before Paul was born, Paul's parents, Paul's father, maybe even Paul's grandfather, we don't know, received a Roman citizenship in some sort of way, and God's purpose behind that way back then was for this moment now to get Paul to Rome. Because you see, when Paul declares his Roman citizenship, it's a game changer. It changes everything that's happening here in this text. It prevented Paul from being tortured and possibly killed. You see, the Romans had no problem killing some worthless Jew. Bring this guy up here and we'll just beat the tar out of him. And if he tells us what he did, oh, great. If he doesn't, he dies, oh, well. But a Roman citizen, no way. Matter of fact, it was illegal to even bind a Roman citizen without some... Credible charges being made against him. So that's why these guys were scared. Okay, but this was a game changer. It changes the way Paul is treated from this point forward. And it paves the path for Paul now to get to Rome. To get an actual escort all the way to Rome. The centurion and them were afraid because Paul, being a Roman citizen, uh, had been bound. Now, some may ask, well, did they just take his word for it? Well, they did because the penalty for falsifying Roman citizenship, saying that I'm a Roman citizen when you're not really a Roman citizen, was death. No questions asked. You're killed because you, don't, you can't just go around claiming you're a Roman citizen. So they took him at his word. Okay, and now this poor tribune, he's in a bit of a pickle now. Okay, his name, we learn later in 2326, is Claudius Lysias. Now Claudius has to figure out what to do. He needs to have some sort of justification for imprisoning Paul. He can't just turn him loose over to the Jews now because he knows Paul's a Roman citizen. If he just turns this guy over to get beat up by these Jews and to get killed by this Jewish mob, then he's in trouble for allowing a Roman citizen to be killed in that sort of manner. But he doesn't know why Paul's there, why Paul's gotten in trouble like this. So he's really in a pickle. And so he decides to call the Sanhedrin together and the Jewish leaders... And let them have sort of a a hearing, not necessarily a trial, but a hearing to try to ascertain what's going on here. That's what it says in verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set set him before them. And we get to verse 20, then we scoot on over to chapter 23, verse 1. It says... This is Paul now. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So now we get to Paul's hearing before the the Sanhedrin. And he says he's lived his life in all good conscience. Now, I want to pause there for a second because you remember last week I mentioned that kind of one of the themes running throughout this last part of Acts is that Paul is, is a good Roman citizen. He is a good son of the nation of Israel. He's a good good citizen of the Roman Empire, a good son of the nation of Israel, but most of all, he is a slave in the kingdom of God. Okay? We kind of see that here in this text by the words that Luke uses here, or I'm sure these were the words that Paul spoke, that Luke uses here to describe when Paul says, I have lived my life. Okay, this is one Greek word that has a twofold meaning. 
It does mean to live, live your life in a certain way, but it also means to be a good citizen. There's lots of focus on citizenry here in these passages. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul uses this word or that Luke uses this word to describe Paul's speech before the Sanhedrin. As I mentioned, Paul is a good citizen of the Roman Empire. He's a good citizen of the nation of Israel. But ultimately, his ultimate allegiance, his ultimate citizenry, ultimate familial bond that trumps all others is that he's a good child of God, a slave of the kingdom of God. So this phrase here, when he says, brothers, I have lived my life before God, it could also be translated, brothers, I have been a good citizen before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, for those of you who were with us when we went through our Philippians series, and this was years ago, so I don't know how many of you were here at that time, in Philippians 1.27 is the only other place in the entire New Testament that this word is used. And Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I remember preaching through that text at that time and bringing up the same point, that Paul here uses this language of citizenry. He talks about being a good citizen of the kingdom of God. Let your life be lived in such a way that you are a good citizen of the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's living his life. He has lived his life in such a way that he is a good citizen of the kingdom of God. And that trumps everything else. It trumps his Roman citizenry and his Jewish affiliations. And it says, ultimately, he lived that life before God. And thus his conscience is clear. I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. This was a declaration of his innocence regarding what he had been charged by the Jews. That he was teaching against the Mosaic law and that he had defiled the temple. But it was also a declaration of his innocence before God. Now some may say, how can Paul say that? How can he say he's lived his life in good, he's lived his whole life. All my li- I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day because he did some things that were not good, like presiding over the stoning of Stephen and then persecuting the church. But you see, Paul's understanding of a clear conscience is not that he has a clear conscience because he's, he himself is somehow good and righteous and not a sinner. He was, as he called himself, the chief of sinners. You see, he had a clear conscience because that conscience had been justified. He was not perfect, yet he stands before them and he stands justified in God's sight. No matter what condemnation the Sanhedrin might lay upon him, God has declared him righteous. Not because of anything that Paul had done and not because of anything that Paul had accomplished, but because of everything that Christ had done and everything that Christ had accomplished. Paul stands with a clear conscience because he trusts not in his own works, but in the works of Christ. This is the only way for a believer to have a clear conscience. No amount of good works will ever give us a clear conscience. Only by faith in Christ's accomplishments on our behalf can we have a good and clear conscience. In 1 Timothy 1, 5, and later in verse 19 of 1 Timothy 1, Paul closely relates a clear conscience with our faith. Otherwise, our consciences actually can mislead us. Only when they've been united to Christ in faith can we have a clear conscience. Otherwise, as I said, our consciences can mislead us. They can be hardened. They can even be seared. Paul, okay, Paul here was not relying on his own goodness before the Sanhedrin. He was making a declaration of his righteousness before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. People who love their works 
oftentimes hate those who live by faith. Satan hates faith, but Satan loves works. And so doing Satan's bidding, Ananias here in verse 2, it says he commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now Ananias was a pretty rotten fellow. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. Okay, besides what we see here, secular history tells us that he was a, a particularly violent and corrupt high priest. He had become high priest around A.D. 47. He served about 12 years or so. Three years before this, he had been called to Rome because he was involved in an ambush to try to kill Samaritan pilgrims. Okay, he took a very pro-Rome political position, which ultimately got himself killed in A.D. 66 during the beginning of the Jewish revolt. But he was a nasty character. Jewish historians had nothing to say, nothing good to say about this guy, Ananias. And so his response here is, in, is consistent with his character. But what might surprise us in this text is Paul's response because it doesn't seem consistent with Paul's character. Here's what Paul says in verse 3. Now it sounds kind of amusing, but let's look at what Paul says. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? I think we're all like, yeah, Paul, you tell him, you whitewashed wall. But that's not really consistent, I don't think, with what Paul has taught many times before regarding how you are to treat those who, are your, um, who rule over you, or how you're even to act once, when you've been reviled. Now Paul is making a right accusation here. Ezekiel 13, 10 through 16 is what he's referring to here, which talks about immoral leaders who are whitewashed walls that would lead Israel astray. It implies religious hypocrisy. And he's right. These men, especially Ananias, were whitewashed walls. They were hypocrites and they were leading the nation of Israel astray. So his words were right, but his attitude seems to have deviated a bit from what he himself would have expected for a disciple of Christ. He was right, but his attitude was wrong. How are we to understand Paul's reaction here in light of his own words? 1 Corinthians 4.12 says, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Or in light of Jesus' own actions, when he was on trial, as the Apostle Peter sums up in 1 Peter 2.23, says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what are we to take from this? Paul's reaction. Well, number one, Paul is not Jesus. And I think Luke wants us to see that. Because Luke has written about Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin as well. And there's lots of similarities. And there's one glaring difference. It's this one. Paul is not Jesus. Paul is not a sinful super saint, a sinless super saint, or a superman. Paul is a sinner who has been justified by faith in Christ alone, yet still in the process, like all of us, of being sanctified. And I think he recognizes that his attitude wasn't right because we see in the next verse, it says, those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, there's different opinions here. Those who think Paul was right on by saying all the whitewashed wall thing think that Paul is just responding here sarcastically. Oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. Just doesn't act like it. But I don't think that's consistent, really, 
with, I think the, the text here makes it pretty clear, Paul feels bad now about what he's done and what he said. And I think the reason Paul feels bad is because ultimately Paul submits to a higher authority. And the scriptures have told him. In Exodus chapter 22 verse 28, that's what he quotes here. The scriptures have told him, you don't act this way toward a ruler of your people. And so he submits to the scriptures. It's not that he's submitting to these high priests and these guys. These guys are jerks. They are whitewashed walls. It's not like he's all of a sudden going, okay... But what he is saying is, I serve a higher authority, and God's word says, I don't need to act like that. So, I'm going to back away. I'm backing down. Paul demonstrates humility, and he demonstrates submission and allegiance to the word of God. Now, why did Paul not know he was the high priest? That's another question, conundrum out there. And we don't have a whole lot of time to hang around there and talk about that. But there's, there's a few different opinions out there. Some people believe that because this Sanhedrin had been called rapidly, maybe they weren't in their garb. And so he didn't have his high priestly garb on. He's just in jeans and a t-shirt. And Paul doesn't recognize him. All right. Okay. He didn't know that was the high priest. You don't look like the high priest today. You know, you're not wearing your suit. Maybe. Uh, maybe in all the hubbub and uproar, Paul didn't even hear who had commanded him to be hit, hit him. And so maybe he just didn't hear it was that the high priest had made that command. Maybe, maybe Paul had been out of town so long he honestly didn't recognize who the high priest was. Maybe Paul simply exploded in anger and lost self-control. That's kind of what I think. Maybe, as Calvin, Calvin believes he was speaking sarcastically here. Uh, may, maybe his eyesight was so poor that, as we know that he had poor eyesight, Paul did. He just couldn't see the high priest. He didn't know who said that. It's just a big blur. Okay, or maybe it's a combination of a few of these. He couldn't see, and he was mad, and he lost his temper. Who knows? Regardless, Paul regretted his actions, and it made it clear that he did so, not because of their indignation, but because he himself was a man who submitted to the authority of God's word. Let's move on. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now we see Paul here, I believe, putting into practice Jesus' words, be as innocent as a dove and as wise as a serpent. He knows of the theological split within the council, and he takes advantage of it to introduce the topic of the resurrection. Luke goes on to explain what happens. He says, and when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. You see, the Sadducees were materialists. They were like the theological liberals of our day that dismiss anything supernatural. Then he, Luke goes on, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. The Pharisees are more like theological conservatives, but they were legalists. Now some believe that Paul here is simply trying to manipulate the situation to his favor... And no doubt he did strategically introduce the topic of the resurrection. But for Paul, it was more than that because the resurrection was at the core behind all of this. Yes, he had been brought to this hearing due to these accusations regarding the Mosaic Law and the defiling of the temple. Both of which were false, trumped up charges. But he knew, and as did some in that room, that the ultimate reason he was here, the reason that the Asian Jews hated him so much... And the underlying reason why they stirred up that riot was that Paul taught that Jesus of Nazareth had, been ris had risen from the grave and that he was the Messiah. Ultimately, the resurrection was at the heart of all of this. 
This Jesus whom they had crucified was literally the hope and the resurrection. And that's why ultimately he was on trial. Paul Paul perhaps was hoping that he could persuade these Pharisees in particular to hear and accept the truth. After all, some Pharisees had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 15 makes that clear. We also know in the Gospel of John of the story of Nicodemus. And so some Pharisees, because of their theological predisposition, were able to accept the doctrine of the resurrection and it made it more likely that they would listen to the gospel message. The Sadducees, which were really sad, you see, right? Isn't that how you learned it when you were a kid? The Sadducees? The Sadducees, because they had already written off God, a God who could intervene in the world through miraculous means, their hearts were perhaps even more hardened to the gospel than the Pharisees were. Well, I don't know that Paul even got a chance really to get to the gospel because Luke tells us in verse 9 that a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And then the dissension became violent and the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Once again... Paul had been rescued by the Romans from his own people, from his brothers in the flesh, from his kinsmen. And it's at this point that we get to chapter 23, verse 11. And I can only imagine how discouraged Paul might have been at this point. You know, God had been working. God had worked out all the details. All the details, including Paul's um, urging to go to to Jerusalem, his arrival in Jerusalem. His need to deal with the problems in the church and to go into the temple. The riot, the tribune's discovery of his citizenship. Even this farce of a hearing was all being worked together by God. But Paul is just like us. He lives in the moment. He is a dot on the line of history, just like we are. And it's hard to see the whole picture. We can see the verses before 2311 and the verses after 2311 and said, of course God works all things together for the good. But Paul was living it, just like you're living it. It's easy to say Romans 8, 28. But we are dots on this line of history. And it's hard to see how God's working these things out. Paul had to be discouraged by the Jewish Christians' susceptibility to the Judaizer. That had to be discouraging to him. He had been fighting these Judaizers in every church. And he gets to Jerusalem and they have... They have convinced tens of thousands of people that Paul's been doing stuff that he hadn't been doing. That had to be discouraging. Paul had to be discouraged by the Jewish people who beat him and accused him of the very things he was trying not to do. He was trying not to defile the temple. And yet he gets beat up and accused of doing that. Paul had to be discouraged when he shared the story of the miraculous appearance of Jesus Christ to him on the road to Damascus and his subsequent conversion, only to hear his Jewish brothers say, away from this Get this guy off the face of the earth. Perhaps Paul was even second-guessing his decision to share his Roman citizenship. I wonder why Paul waited till he had been stretched out. More than likely, being stretched out to be whipped meant your hands were bound together and you were raised up either hanging from a beam or you were tied to a post or if neither one of those two were available, you'd be stretched out on the ground Your arms stretched out with chains, people pulling chains from all directions so that they could get a good whipping on you. Why did he wait till he was stretched out, it says, before he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Remember in Philippians, he he also shares his Roman citizenship. It was after he was beaten, put in jail. 
You see, I, I'm wondering if Paul was kind of second-guessing himself. I'm just kind of guessing here. Because aren't we supposed to carry our cross and suffer just like Jesus did? This is the exact same whipping Jesus received. And I'm wondering if Paul's discouraged. Maybe he even feels like he gave in to his flesh. Who knows? Perhaps Paul was now down after this hearing. He blew it. He blew it in front of Ananias. And these men were unwilling to hear the gospel. And these were his brothers. These guys were closer to him than even the people in the temple because, you see, Paul had been a Pharisee. He probably knew some of the people in that council pretty well. We know from the scriptures that Paul loved his brothers. Perhaps he's discouraged. Perhaps he's second-guessing his tactics. But God was using all of this. And he sends him a word of comfort. That word we read, Acts 23, 11, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So I've got two points here to kind of conclude our sermon that I want to give us. The first one is this. The God of all comforts consoles us through his word. If you're feeling like Paul perhaps was feeling... You can't see how God is working the details of your life together. You can't see how he's working this, this terrible relationship you have with someone together for the good. You can't see how he's working your horrible job together for the good. You can't see how he's working that death that happened in your family together for the good. You can't see this. Perhaps you're like Paul. Well, the comfort you need comes from the word of Jesus Christ. The Lord stood by him and said, spoke. Now, as an apostle, Paul received a direct revelation from Jesus. And we are not apostles. I hope, hopefully we've made that clear over the past few weeks. But we, too, have an infallible, direct revelation called the Bible. The comfort of God comes from his word. Psalm 119, verse 52. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. This is our comfort. We too have the Lord Jesus, the living word of God, standing beside us and speaking. Speaking words like, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 40, 31. Words like the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22. Words like I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. Words like I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. Words like, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And on, and on, and on, and on, and on through this book. He has given you a word of comfort. Take comfort, brothers. 
He is standing beside you, speaking into your life right now. No matter what you're going through. No matter what pain you're enduring. No matter what discouragement you're facing, even over your own sin. Take comfort. The comfort we so desperately need. It gives us strength in our circumstances, not a guaranteed release from them. This word of comfort that we so desperately need gives us strength in the middle of our circumstances and no guaranteed release from them. Jesus does not say, Paul, take courage. You'll soon be set free from prison and enjoy health, wealth, and prosperity for the rest of your life. The Word of God says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The trials you are going through have a design. It's called your sanctification, so that you'll be lacking in nothing. Take courage. And secondly, to finish that sentence that's in your notes, the God of all comforts consoles us through his word, which constantly affirms that his plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. Which constantly affirm that his plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. Jesus goes on to say, For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God had a plan and a purpose for Paul to get him to Rome, to testify. That's a legal term, a technical term. Here he was being dragged from court to court, but ultimately his testimony wasn't about some religious difference or some riot in the temple. His testimony was about the risen Lord. And his testimony would be made in Rome, even if it ultimately cost him his life. Consequently, this Greek word here for testimony in its noun form is the word from which we get the word martyr. God's comfort through his word is designed to keep us on mission because his word, in his word, God reveals that the mission is unstoppable, indomitable, invincible. So hear these words of comfort to you, friends, this morning. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42, 2. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Psalm 138, 8. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 19, 21. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. And I am sure of this, of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory Ephesians 1 11 through 14 
and on and on and on and on in this book. The comfort of knowing that his purposes and his plans cannot be thwarted. I have said it before and I will say it again. I find no doctrine in scripture more comforting than the doctrine of God's sovereignty. When I'm discouraged, and it happens quite often, when I'm discouraged about circumstances or sin, failures, pain, stressed relationships, etc., my comfort comes when I rest on the truth that He is in control. And that His purposes for me and His purposes for this world cannot be thwarted. This is exactly what Paul needs to hear. God knows, but Paul does not yet know how much more hardship is about to come. God knows, but Paul does not yet know that two years of sitting in a prison in Caesarea are right around the corner for him. I can only imagine how Paul feels, and we'll get to this in the next couple of weeks, and he's in Caesarea, and God has told him he's going to get to Rome, yet he spends two years because of this dude named Felix who's playing political games. Paul spends two years sitting away. And I can only imagine if Paul's anything like me, because I, I feel this way so many times. Oh God, time is just wasting away. I'm nearly this old. I'm not going to tell you how old I am. I'm nearly this many years old, and, and God, and the church is this old, and we haven't done this, and we haven't accomplished, and things are just wasting away, Lord. How come, God? I can imagine Paul sitting there going, God, these years are just wasting. You said I was going to Rome. But Paul has the comfort of knowing that God's purposes, they're not going to be thwarted. Whether it takes two months or two years, God will accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish. It is the confidence in the sovereignty of God and the comfort from the word of God that keeps us from seeing difficulties and trials and conflicts as wasted days. So take comfort in Jesus, friends, and in his word. He is reigning and ruling all the affairs of our lives, even our own foolish and sinful behaviors and actions, and the actions of those who sin against us. We finish this text out, and I'm just going to kind of summarize how it ends here. God continues to use this angry counsel. He continues to use the circumstances, including this angry counsel, to demonstrate to this poor, poor Lysias. You begin to feel bad for the tribune here. Poor Lysias here that this isn't going to work out here in Jerusalem. He's got to get Paul somewhere else. It really becomes clear when Paul's nephew, there's some interesting details here in the rest of this text. Paul's nephew uncovers a plot. You see, several Jews came to the Sanhedrin and they said, listen, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. So here's what we want you to do. Go tell the tribune that you need to talk to Paul some more. And we want to have another hearing. And while he's on his way here, we're going to ambush him and kill him. Get rid of him. Sound like a great plan to the Sanhedrin? Great plan to these Jews? Well, Paul's nephew overhears it. I don't know how. If Paul was from a family of Pharisees, it could have very well been that one of Paul's nephews was a Pharisee. And said, you know what? I can't let this happen. We don't know. But somehow Paul hears about it. I doubt Paul's um, nephew was a Pharisee because the indication is that he's a young boy. Because when they bring him to Lysias, Lysias takes him by the hand. I can't imagine him walking hand in hand with a Pharisee over here. He takes him by the hand over to the side and says, now tell me what's going on. And Paul's nephew reveals the plot. 
And so here's what Lysias does. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So Paul is now getting an escort with 470 soldiers all the way to Caesarea. And he's getting, a, he's getting a ride, too. It wasn't normal for prisoners to, be, to get their own mount. Usually they walk behind the horses, chained. He's going to give Paul a ride, probably because he's a Roman citizen, one of the reasons. But he gives him his own mount, and he gives him 470 soldiers. In Jerusalem, there was a, the garrison included 1,000 a, a soldiers. He's taking half of the soldiers in Jerusalem to get Paul to Caesarea. I think that's pretty cool how God works that out. These Jews had their plot. Well, God had his plan. And Paul was about to be surrounded by a bunch of Jewish armor and swords and spears to ensure that he gets exactly where God wants him to get. Nothing's going to thwart God's plans. And then, then Lysias writes this letter to Felix. It's kind of interesting here. He says to Felix, this man was seized by the Jews. This is verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews and and, and the Jews were about to kill, and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Love how he just politically turns this to his favor a little bit here. You know, I discovered that he was a Roman citizen. Oh, I forgot to mention that I stretched him out. I was about to flog him, by the way. No, he don't want to mention that because he knows how much danger he'd be in if he, they found out what he did to a Roman citizen. But regardless, Lysias has realized through the circumstances that God orchestrated, that this isn't going to work out in Jerusalem. we got to get Paul to Caesarea. And then we'll see how Paul works out the circumstances to get, I mean, God works out the circumstances to get Paul to Rome. But he's on the road to Rome. It's all worked out exactly the way God had planned it. Maybe not the way Paul planned it, but exactly the way God had planned it. I can only imagine that Paul is sitting there riding on this horse, looking at 470 armed soldiers around him on the road to Caesarea, and he's thinking these words. And we know that God works all things together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. As he's riding there on that horse. Are you Matt Redmond today? You feel like you've pulled a spiritual hamstring. You're lying on the mat you don't even know if you should be in the race anymore. You're down. You're discouraged. Hear the God of all comfort this morning standing beside you, speaking his word to you. He is. He is speaking so loudly. Not with an audible voice, but with something much louder. He is speaking. Listen to the God of all comfort. Take heart. His purposes for you and his plans for the gospel, his plans for the church. It's indomitable. It can't be stopped. Invincible. God will accomplish his purpose. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, get ready to sing one last song here as a response. Let's just praise God for his comfort. Jesus, we come to you now in prayer. We praise you, Lord, for this glorious story of you coming and standing beside Paul. Just, just, just 
the, the language there of you just coming and standing beside like he's about to fall over. He's about to collapse. And you come and you're there and you're standing. And you never collapse. You're standing strong with a word of truth. And you've spoken clearly. In these latter days, God has spoken through the Son. You have spoken clearly. We have your word. So Jesus, encourage us with your word. Cause us now to, to stand up straight with strengthened knees. To continue to run this race. Because in reality, unlike the Derek Redmond video, you didn't just come along at the end. From the very beginning of the race, from the moment you entered into our heart and changed us and transformed us into new creations, from that moment, you have been right there beside us, enabling us to run that race. Don't let us take any credit, Lord. And you're there to continue to enable us, even during our weakest and darkest days. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your ministry to Paul. We thank you, Lord, for your ongoing and continual ministry on behalf of us that goes on every moment in heaven, a continual intercession, even now as we speak. We thank you, Jesus. We glorify you with the words we sing. It's all for you. In your name we pray. Amen.